I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we discuss the implications of ChatGPT for IT and the industry. And we spend a lot of time figuring out how data providence, governance, bias, and ownership will impact ChatGPT in IT and technology and cloud contexts. Uh, we cover a lot of ground as usual, uh, really looking in how ChatGPT can be used in disruptive ways, but also in protective ways, uh, what we describe as guardrails for how these systems are going to get built. And uh, we come to some very interesting conclusions. I know you'll enjoy the conversation. I'm super curious about this, the GPT angle um, here. I've been actually talking to some, I do uh, college interviews, uh, alumni college interviews. And one, I've been asking the, the students about their, the, their thoughts about GPT and uh, they see it as incredibly disruptive um, from like writing papers for them, writing essays for them, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. Um, Putting on an IT front, I mean, is this going to change how we, you know, look at things like digital transformation or building applications or building applications? Absolutely. I mean, it, this it's GPT plus what they've added to it for the CX, the the user environment, the user interfaces that they've incorporated. And that goes every every place from the etiquette with which um, user and system interact uh, to um, a great deal of the way chat G, GT, GPT has kind of put uh, some guardrails around the, the conversation. And the, the guardrails are, are very important. I I started a, I used the uh, the break to do a deep dive and uh, uh, decided I was too frustrated with Chat GPT, so I went over into the labs and broke it out and started messing with some of the parameters, so that I had a you know a little bit feistier, crankier version of Chat GPT. Um, who also was, which also was was prone to hallucinate a little more often, but you know, it was it was it was it was it was, it was really entertaining. It was both entertaining, but it was also very informative. And I completely buy into the fact that as a means of establishing user interfaces and user experience, it's it's going to make a, a big difference. The idea that I can go straight at, you know, chat GPT and, and replace Google with it in order to, you know, get the information I need or want. No, I we're still a long way from that. But yeah, that they're the different use cases. Like e Google is information retrieval. Chat GPT is generation of templated yeah. material it's 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 summarization it's 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 also to a great degree it's you know what is what is as close it's it's as close as you can come to asking um the system for what is common knowledge or what is commonly held because it is based on um a lot of the you know the 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 data on which it's been trained and so it comes up with some uh yeah some rather rather odd odd um, <laughs> odd results sometimes but i had i i found it really useful and this was one of the things that i i really enjoyed i started to kind of unloop Unleash some of the parameters uh, in the lab version, and um, 
decided to have a conversation about quantum computing. You know, okay. tell tell me about quantum computing and and what is <laughs> which what, is <laughs> mostly it did not present in the data sets they used for the training, right? That Sorry, was the reason. Yeah. That was the reason because they oh, pretty much covered. ended in twenty twenty one. Yeah. So the question was, you know, I was asking questions and 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 here was one of the things the most one of the most impressive things I came across with ChatGPT. It said, I'm not familiar with that term. I'm not I'm not, you know, I have some limitations on my knowledge and I'm not familiar with the term that you just used. And I did And I did this purposefully because then what I said was, all right, let's try to work with analogy. Here's, are you familiar with the following concept, you know, from a different part of computing? Yes. Gave me a little spiel. I said, now, by analogy, apply that to quantum computing. And it said, oh, it it did the the more the, the moral equivalent of oh now I get it and went through and actually did a really good a truly a credible job of applying by analogy a concept to quantum computing and you know it was a discussion let's put it this way what it gave me as a result of this you know twenty minute thirty minute conversation was a whole lot better than most of the the trade press and the 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 popular technical press about quantum computing and i i i gotta hand it to them this actually worked pretty damn well now i asked for a reference and it made up some completely (laughs) fictitious reference and that was the point at which i kind of said all right Stop hallucinating! I'm, I, we're, we're, we're backing could, up on that. Could you, could you use it in that sense? Like we were talking about digital transformation, and it's based on what's been. So thinking about a new model might be hard. But could you, could you use ChatGPT to validate corporate strategy and IT strategy from that perspective? No, I don't know about validating it, but in terms of generating. Generating alternative strategies that at least fall within kind of parameters of all right, hadn't thought about that, but that's what I'm, yeah, I yeah. should. It's like so it's like a, an unbi- okay. less biased um, exactly review. opinion. Okay, so I've done that, and I've oh. asked it to, and I'm very specific about my questions that I ask ChatGTP, and I put in a lot of. Um, specificity and the parameters around it. Like I've said, compare and contrast value frameworks with these types of criteria or compare and contrast digital transformation and industry four. Compare and contrast being a, a key phrase, but then articulate or specify by definition, the pros and cons or whatever. So like I, I I ran this thing on modernization versus digital transformation through it to see what it was going to come back with at what level, high level, medium level, or, or very granular. And I've said to it, can you be more specific or more granular in your answer? And I keep getting these, I'm sorry, I don't have a frame of reference for that in certain situations, but it does a decent and credible job. However, what I would tell you is it also does specify in in its limitation, I was only trained up until 2021. And while these two may be, you know, like with industry four and digital transformation or modernization and digital transformation, it articulates and very clearly says at the end of every conclusion, it's very much a choice of the corporation based on other factors, like, for example, the economic climate or its cash flow position or whatever, whatever. So I've tried doing that. What I also did do, though, by the way, is I took Java and had it converted to Python and it was flawless. That's interesting. Absolutely flawless. Blew me away. 
ran no problem whatsoever. I took something, somebody has asked me to review some, some software for them. And um, I literally took it and I wanted to see how many times you could refactor it in what languages. <laughs> Did you do like a, like a translation loop? One to one to one to one and then back? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. And sent it back to them and said, I want you to test each of these for accuracy and to see if the functionality is exactly the same. And they were floored. And I said, so now with chat GPP, I have now created iterative capabilities and you can release this product in this many languages, at least this part of this product in this many languages, which Rich leads me to ask you a very specific question. If one, because Software Bill of Materials and Providence and all those wonderful things are in your wheelhouse, if someone takes a script and puts it into ChatGTP and does the same kinds of translation that I do, how are you going to qualify the Providence of using the artificial intelligence engine to do that refactoring? I'm sorry, your, how do you when you say qualify, what do you mean by when you say well, qualify? Okay. If it's on if it's software bill of materials and you're looking at the provenance going back, one of the players in that bill of in that provenance may be chat GPT. So yeah. how do you well remember the, the difference <laughs> between <laughs> between yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. The the difference between provenance and lineage here. Yes, um, okay. The lineage here is I've taken a script in Java. I've taken a yeah. piece of code in Java. I've run it through chat, uh, chat GPT. And the result is, you know, Python code. Fine. Mm -hmm. That is a transformation. The, the lineage of that transformation is it's dependent on the first, you know, the input there and right. the 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 actor who was responsible for pushing it through chat in order to get Python. That's the provenance. That's the yes. context. That's where the responsibility lies. And so I'm going to ask you once again, what do you mean by qualify? I can record okay. both the action that was taken and repeat it so that I get the same result. But I can take the provenance and say, all right, who's responsible for this? That's a different story. Okay, so it's, this is why I'm asking you the question. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be long-winded about it, but it was really no. like front and center in my brain because I'm saying, so I actually have accountability and responsibility because the tool that I used to refactor that code was ChatGPT. And OpenAI right. has actually no responsibility in it. It's me. That's correct. Okay. So then you could end up with provenance that says originator, of the JavaScript, Joanne, output in, in Python, I could then run that through again, and you could end up with the same human being who may use different AI tools to do that refactoring in every one of those languages. But the, mm -hmm. so the lineage is what you're recording, not the provenance, or you're recording both, but you're just saying, I could you be a one be, to many. You should be dealing with both. You need okay. both. If you're yeah. going to, if you're using this in any kind of context where, um, let's just talk about um, going back to data. If I'm using this at all for data and the, the whole issue becomes one of, uh, yes, it does the right thing, but some byproduct turns out a data set that is uh, prone to re-identification. All right? Right. I'm this is this is the transformation, but you're responsible, and okay. it would be, and the whole issue then becomes one of all right, what rights <laughs> did you first have to use the the Java code? Was mm -hmm. it open source? 
Was it available? Do you have any obligations? That whole kind of oh. chain of accountability. Yeah. So GP, chat GPT injecting copyright material into your into into the answers. Uh, this is this to me. You brought up guardrails. This who you, owns it? Right. You. This is to me where where it gets fascinating on your statement about the guardrails because the the thing that I think people aren't talking about as much yet about the chat GPT stuff is actually how good a job it does on the guardrails. Um, and it's, it's possible that, you know, one of the more immediate benefits here is not code generation, but actually guardrail analysis on the code that's being generated. Is this violating some copyright? Is this, um, and you know, it's, it's even, well, even for teachers with essays, they should be, they should be a chat GPT. This is why, we need data bill of materials because Agreed. it's data bomb that goes along with that snippet of Java code allows you to identify the dependencies for the Python script that comes out the other side. That data bomb should also reference any terms wow. of use that come along with it. Mm-hmm. And it it behooves the end user to look at those data bombs, look at you know, look at what it says on the tin before incorporating it into their code. It is as it, it's as uh, as important as you know any of the other kind of issues we have about. Software bombs, or to me, it's like watermarks in digital videos, photos, yeah. audio, right? And uh, there's no easy way to create a Chat GPT watermark, but um, no, nope. the the you're you're making me think even down to like log entries that we we build. You know, sh you know, should we yeah. be injecting a signature into those things? Um, uh, to an extent, if not, if, if, if not a signature, a way of determining, you know, that let's just put it this way. I might put a, I might put a way bill or a, or a bill of materials around some package and then have a means internal, you know, that would actually check for, um, for tampering, for modification. It, it would be, you know, gee, it says on the, it says on the, uh, on the, container <laughs> the container label the envelope, this is yeah. what's inside and here are the here are the dependencies and on your log entries if someone's messed with them the whole point is you want to put some mechanism in there that would at the very least indicate that there's tampering it's not it you know it's not what was it's not in line with what the bomb says this is aligned to the deep fake problem of, you know, that we're seeing with, with all this stuff. It's like, you know, the create me a photo about this and this person's style with this type exactly. of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we, ever wanna, it's a provenance crisis. Yeah. They're coming. If you yeah. ever want to make yourself feel terrible, I did this. <laughs> okay. No, just to see, I took the piece of code, the JavaScript that I had written, and this was my original work. For, for this exercise, because I didn't want to go down the road of just pulling something out of a repository. And then I said to it, after it did the, the um, uh, transliteration, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, are there other pieces of code that look like this in the sense of that have the same function or the same criteria? And it came back with like a thousand different references in GitHub. And I absolutely, like, I was like, Tearful because I said, "Well, I'm not original anymore," <laughs> and it, you know, like you really have to look at that very carefully because there's so much that is the same, but it's yeah. really culled from so many different resources that you you have to wonder, even as it's giving you the explanation for something, right? How often it could reiterate the same statement but from how many different sources and each of them is individual but none of them is unique 
And so one of the guardrails that I'm looking at think or that I've been thinking about to your point of guardrails is uniqueness. You mean yeah. And the the obverse on that is yeah. uh similarity. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that we've been working on with some of the work that we were doing on provenance and lineage is actually taking not code sets, data sets, and using a variety of similarity measures to basically say, all right, is there uh, data plagiarism? Has this data set been has this data set been extracted from some other data set that I've seen, perhaps mis- mixed around and you know columns eliminated and should could be a subset. Is there that, are some, yeah. Is is that an oh uh challenging intersection between the training and and search? Because what you're describing, I mean, that we're some of what we're describing here is not AI training. It's actually, sir, it's you were saying, hey, look, I want you, you're, I'm going to use this AI as a search engine because it's got enough. And and this is the challenge that if if we had data provenance in it, then it's then it's actually more of a search engine than a than an AI than an algorithm. The problem is the algorithms don't do a good job of giving us back what the sources were that form that the training model. I mean, it's if, if it's big enough, it's like, well, a hundred things, sorry, a thousand things. Yeah. It's weird. So you're, you're, hmm. it, I mean, it, yeah, you're, it, it does get mind bending, but when we were, we were looking at data sets, one of our issues was, all right, um, I want to know if I've seen this before or some portion of it before, because in many of the cases, I'm going to be dealing with data sets that don't have a data bill of materials or don't come with both lineage and provenance. And so I have to have at my beck and call some means of establishing the history, the pedigree of the data set that I've just accepted from some other source, some second party. And it it gets into forensics, as you know, we were just discussing, but it also gets into a lot of the issues that you were just just raising, Rob, the uh, search. And and um, again, one of the things none of us have have, um, opened up yet on this whole topic is what's ownership of data or what's ownership of code in a situation that um, Joanna's just uh, described, which is I write a piece of code, I put it through the, the hopper, I, you know, the Java comes out as Python, what's, who owns that code? It, it, it's, it gets even more difficult because um, just us with, with authorship attribution and natural language processing, you can't you can't just look at the keywords. Are you, you like like when, when you're looking at data, you you cannot just look at what the data represents. You also need to look at how the data rep- is represented because they may have like two different data sets may have the same data and still be distinctly unique and not infringing on each other because. They are represented in in different formats, and, and 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 when you're dealing with 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 data sets that that you use internally, like how you represent your data makes a big example, difference. Give me a well, I'm, it makes a big difference in the result if you feed it through. But give me an. Can you kind of drill down on that a little bit, Klaus? Um, well, give me an example. Say, let, let, let's take a. a Simple example, relational, relational data. Okay. Uh, you say like, okay, you, you've indexed by, by name, uh, your data is indexed by name, 
and, and so I have a list of, of people in, in, in this in like like a, a phone book. I have a list of people. Now look at um now look at the data set that pivots that and says, okay, uh, list of phone numbers and and who is associated with that. It's the same data, but it's represented in a completely different manner. The indexing has changed. Okay, so I have a question on that, though, Klaus. Even if, take, for example, something like an orb, or orm, rather, I should say. An orm. Yeah. Um, how, <laughs> to me, the uniqueness is not the indexing. It's the definition of the object, or maybe even the logic of how it was created, like you can go only so far back before you hit Aleph. Yeah. Right? Well, it's this is this is why again you add yet one more complication here, and that is you want not only to pull in and record the lineage of the models, but of the schema that yes. are that are so. Schema are going to have to be, you know, managed as part of the metadata that comes along with data sets. Just, you know, in the for exactly the the reason that you 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 just raised. God, I hope we don't have to go back to ORMs. <laughs> and it gets even more complicated when 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 you when you start touching public domain, because right. th there's. A whole bunch of data where where ownership is is either I that there was either a distinct source that that then became public or the source is unknown, right? In which yeah. case, like you cannot attribute it to distinctly to a person that there may be an alias. It may, it may just be something that. It, it is hard to to um um uh to trace like for example uh the the um there's there's a recent video by by tom scott um so he posted a a public retraction in in one of his videos that says i was wrong because he did the research on uh what was it it, it was um uh, brick stamps in buildings in in London, I believe, uh, regarding uh, 18th century fire brigades, uh, and so th th there was the, this this popular myth that that fire brigades would let buildings burn down that didn't have the, the their own the the tag for the brigade that they belong to. Turns out he was wrong, and the sources that that he he, he quoted from were wrong too, up to a certain degree. It, it it was it was a fascinating video, but but it, it it basically the 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 bottom line of that is that he he found out that reputable sources like from libraries from from collections were 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 basing their statements on un, unreputable sources themselves. Yeah, this is the uh, Isaac Asimov uh, Encyclopedia Galactica problem. The, yeah, the, the, exactly right. Um, and this is why uh, lineage and provenance tagged on to data, tacked onto data, and basically good practice or best practice uh, should be you don't use a second party data set unless you've got at least some some information on both of those counts and you feel at least comfortable enough with the fact that I can go back and and ask a question or or backtrack to some point because quite frankly going forward the the kind of data we're going to get from deep fakes to you know badly um Badly managed log files and and uh, IoT IoT information is going to you know it's going to sink us. 
Well, the other, I mean, you raised this issue in, in such a way that it leads me to ask another question, which is just as much as you would have lineage and um, uh, Provenance. other things. Yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry. Switching gears from one language to another, uh, yeah. provenance attached, and you met it, you, and you you mentioned schema. How are you Which, going to also put a guardrail up for bias? Like some of the stuff that I see from G, GTP three, not not in terms of code, but in terms of the way questions are asked, you can read a bias from its answers. You can absolutely. definitely see certain bias. Absolutely. And that's, you know, there's the point where you start getting into, all right, the if I start thinking about the, the pedigree of a data set. Right. And and what you are you're raising is is absolutely important. Um, you know, there's there's a certain point at which you would have to go through and actually do a you'd have to do an analysis of the of the baseline data and look for those kinds of those kinds of biases to be it, it, you don't I, I disagree with that well I'll, I'll let, I'll let, let, let me let me let me just finish for a second Klaus because I it, it's it's an untenable it's an untenable uh, approach um you can't go back to every source data set and look for bias. Um, I think the best you can do is um, run various kinds of tests for bias. Um, and it's going to, you know, I think there will be there will be a kind of a in many of these cases, there will be a some kind of classic tools and classic approaches to looking for bias um uh, and that those in in turn will kind of indicate hey there's something fishy going on here it calls for deeper uh deeper investigation i'm sorry say a, bi a bias ai at that point i mean this this to me is like is is there uh and actually let me let me take a step back because I have a deeper question from that perspective because ChatGPT is notable for its volume of analysis and the number of processors or nodes, right? The, 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 the scope of it, but is there something less that doesn't require the volume? Is there, is there actually innovation, another innovation besides just having bigger, more data? Because if in that case, the things that we're oh, describing open. that are problem with chat GPT are, you know, there's data set issues, but if you were like, Oh, I'm going to only, I'm going to limit the data sets to things with known provenance is, have we, is there an innovation on this additionally? Actually, that's one of the big selling points of open AI's technology. Okay. Uh, well, some of the newer technology, I, it's not, I don't know so much about open AI's certainly the deep mind technologies is that they are making claims and i think they're they're valid that they don't require as much uh source data in order to get the kind of results that they're they're getting and uh, those are um those are situations where yeah the data doesn't exist so i can't you know i don't have a the volume that I need, but there are some there are some uh, areas of study where the models, the 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 large models, are requiring a great deal less source material for training. Okay, because I I could see cases where we're you know as a transition point using AI from a guardrails perspective to super to supervise and say okay. You're, you're following the pattern, matches things that I would do. It's predictable. Mm -hmm. That's great. As soon as you fall out of that, then, you know, start sounding alarm bells, right? This is, you know, I, I think this is what AI ops was supposed to be doing in that, yeah. in the designs here. Um, 
but you know, super, you know, using AI to do the pattern matching and actually say, right, you're, you're, you're not matching with the patterns I expect removes a lot of the challenges that we're describing because it's not a generative source. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a, a monitoring source. Actually, maybe I should ask it's that a as a question. It's a <laughs> testing it? source. It's a, it's a, it is a testing source. It's a, it's a yeah. source of, I mean, I'm trying to remember now the, 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 the statistical issue that the, uh, the IRS uses, for example, uh, among others, they look at, at the numbers that show up in um, balance sheets and uh, Oh. <laughs> because of uh, because of uh, kind of the distribution of numbers, the the last digits in a number have a fairly common frequency. And if people start messing with the you know messing with the numbers in the you know kind it of flags cooking it. the books, yeah. Um, yeah. What's the name of the? I've seen that research. No, there, there's there, there's a is a. Um, yeah, it's not a linear distribution of one no, to ten, not at all. zero zero to nine. It, it's weighted towards like nines, nines and sevens or something. Like there's a, but there is a. Um, you're at this. Yeah, there is a mathematical name for that. Don't yeah. ask me what it is, but I do know that there is one. But I I want to go back for a second. When you're talking about bias elimination, I I foresee the future being something like a cookie. Where, you know, we we only not that we keep data or anything like that, but, you know, this sort of labeling on on the AIs that basically say we're not responsible for inherent bias that came with the data sets that we use to create this AI. And yeah. there's a lot of people working on that logic now. And so my question is around, OK, you can't go back to square one to make sure that you eliminate every single bias because. I'm sorry, and I hate to put it this way, but I can only think in that dimension at this point, you know, um, kind of the reference of old white men. And I don't mean that personally to anyone and nor any disrespect <laughs> with it, but like, you know, w w where's the DEI in that type of thing? That being said, if you take that for granted, to your point, Rob, the notion of the guardrails, there's going to be iterations on everything as it learns and grows. It's going to, you know, re-intensify its own. It's either going to have more bias or it will find its own biases and begin to take those out, depending on how it's used. But the scoping issue, I can foresee like I was talking with someone who who's been doing a lot of work with OpenAI, and mm -hmm. his view was you're going to see industry lexicon, and yeah. all of that lexicon will be related to that industry, and the model will continue to be a generative model, but it will iterate based on new learnings coming from other sources or cross references or whatever. But still, oh. and and go ahead. Sorry, while well, yes. you just hit me, Banforth's Banforth's law is what we were talking ah, about. Thank you, uh, Banford's Banford's law. Okay, so we'll um, have to build that into the schema and the discussion. <laughs> well, I, I think only use I sevens think, and nines. Yeah, only use sevens and nines. You know, the the whole point here is, I think you're I think you're right. You what you will see is that domains mm -hmm. will establish basically data dictionaries and taxonomies that will be that will be used and um it it's useful in a number of areas one of them being uh the progressive elimination of bias one one would hope one would hope that that newer criteria will be added to the algorithms in such a way that they will start to eliminate those biases. But, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about your reference to tatted dictionaries takes me back to like 2001 and, and writing Rosetta Net Pips. And I don't want to do that anymore. Thank you. So the question then becomes, can you take the existing data dictionaries from Mesa 
or from uh, IEEE or from any of those sources with the correct mm-hmm. attributions and, and build those now into the newer iteration of data dictionary. And what does it help you accomplish? To be compliant, to be like, we should be leveraging these learnings. And I know that Klaus probably disagrees substantially with that notion. Um, I I mean, I I am opinionated and I guess you could say I'm biased about this, but... um, (laughs) There's a couple of points here. One is I I don't think we we can we can eliminate bias at all, uh, and 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 really we, we shouldn't tr- be treating any information as absolute true. Um, like the, the, there's lots of there's a lot a lengthy philosophical discussion that that we could have about that, and, and we would never finish it because even professional philosophers have not agreed on it uh but i mean ju- just to take a a more popular take on it uh there's the whole notion of truthiness uh to to do this um the other part also in in terms of bias detection uh, and, and bias verification at least on on that aspect uh, there is precedent in natural language processing that in in that you you train your model on one set of data and then you have a control set where you you don't compare the data that is extracted you compare the responses that your model gives and that is sufficient so you, you so when you train your your chat gpt on on one data set model you you don't need to look at at, at the knowledge that this that it's encoded about it. You just need to ask it a question and you need to compare that to a known answer, which is what basically what you guys have been doing so far. You, you've been asking ChatGPT a question and saying like, is, is it what it's telling me appropriate Something or I can, complete bullshit? Can I verify it by some other means? Yeah. Now that, that like in, in in natural language processing, we have a formal process for verifying this as opposed to doing it manually. But the result is the same. You compare the responses based on its training data against the response that you expect. Uh, and and if it matches, good. If there's drift, well the, then you start going into like okay, accuracy versus versus uh uh versus R value versus F measure, et cetera. So, but again, the the science for verifying this is there already. Yeah. The, and and it's being used okay. pretty pretty interestingly. Uh, there's a it started out as a as an op, as an open project, but it's now been commercialized too. Um, great expectations is the name of it. And it actually is a set of it's a it's a way of uh, it, think of the moral equivalent of CICD for data sets, mm-hmm. and and basically it um, the whole notion here is you know what are your expectations about the data sets and and uh, were they met and how far off were they and in what ways were they off yeah. and the, it's a very interesting some very interesting work being done there. Strictly on data, and there, there are even yearly academic competitions where exactly. they produce a new data set each year with, with with their control data, and then they 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 let the 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 models run against the new data set and compare it and see who comes out on top closest. Yeah, yeah, no, and uh, and you know it's. The the implication here is, you know, I've um, I've got something that is generalizable and is going to be applicable to a data set that I've never seen before. Um, but it's a it's a way of calibrating. It's a it's like a, a what you're looking for is is um, kind of the moral equivalent to some of these um, 
some of the tests that we you know we now apply to hardware just to to get a uh, you know a, a reference on comparative performance of a of a piece of you know compute hardware for example mm-hmm. well i think one of the things that this has all led me to think more deeply about and and what i was thinking about over the break was how do you apply something like the equivalent of open ai to the logic with which you create a function i I can tell you how i would be using it uh, and how i see ChatGPT being transformative in the current mm-hmm. lesson, in that it is, I I see it as a templating tool. So I I tell it, okay, this is okay. how I want this function to look like. Like, and these these are the inputs and outputs I want. I I don't expect it to be accurate, but I expect it to give me a scaffold that I can build upon. And that is where I can see the transformation, the transformational ability of ChatGPT becoming commonplace. In that, let let's say I know Terraform, I know it very well, but I don't know Pulumi. I can ask ChatGPT to give me the equivalent of what I know in Terraform in Pulumi, and then I, I it saves several hours of work of looking up and copying and pasting examples because it's mm-hmm. giving me an example that's tailored to my needs. Now, what yeah. I need to know is how to represent what I want to ChatGPT, which is also why I don't think ChatGPT is going is going to be tr- destructive, but instead transformative, because it still requires the mental effort to for me to be able to tell it what I want. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's part of the value of it is it does really make you once once you've used it a couple of times it makes you become very specific in the terms of reference that you use to ask it to do something mm-hmm. like you you can't say quantify and get an answer you can't say qualify but you can't say quantify and if you say things like compare and contrast, it can do it. But if you then say, what is a more precise way to articulate that statement, it kind of scratches its head. And, you know, when you do the repeat, the you know, repeat the answer or regenerate the answer, it comes back and gives you an error code. So how you choose your words and what words you choose and in what order also makes a difference. So Gee, it's it, kind of it like learning like, programming all over again, isn't it? <laughs> you think, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to your question about Orm, I actually did run something through it to see what it would come up with, and it blew up. Now, having said that, like, given that, like, that we already established that how you ask a question to ChatGPT is important. I yes. also see this as being a useful didactic tool in yes. teaching a large user base how to phrase questions to give to their peers. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to say, as opposed, yeah. let, let's say you are your IT desk. You use this content and say, this is not working, fix it. <laughs> ChatGPT will, will tell you, well, I don't know. But if they were trained on ChatGPT to give it the description, that would reduce so so many headaches on user-facing jobs. You, you, you've just you've just given ChatGTP a, a, a an interesting job uh, in the in technical support and help desk. You know, it's like <laughs> here, let me let me do let me do the uh, you know the nurse practitioner workup on your problem here, 
and uh, actually, triage. yeah, yeah, it's very real. Triage, it's triage, but it's also it, it's it's um, it's bucketing in a in a in an interest very very interesting way. And I think you're you're absolutely right that it it actually gets you can train individuals or you can put the AI in in place as the kind of media mediator between the end user and you know the the help desk the the third level the third level uh um support support person that just got rolled out at two in the morning right yeah we we are a bit over so i am i'm gonna wrap up as hard as this is i am certain we're gonna come back to this topic um oh yeah no doubt it's fascinating. Fun. Awesome. Thank you all. I, I I feel like we, as usual, have approached a topic that's been covered pretty well, but from a, a much different angle. So thank you. Cool. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. You too. Wow. What an interesting conversation and without a doubt, a theme for 2015. 23 conversations in the future. Uh, please join us at the 2030.cloud. Be part of these roundtables. Bring your questions and your insights. They are more fun the more voices we have. And if uh, ChatGPT is something that had you listening all the way to the end of the episode, then we want you to join us uh, at the, the cloud, the 2030.cloud. It's where to find all the information about how to join and be part of the roundtable. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.